Welcome to the Babelry. Working, parenting, playing, voting, advocating, and creating as women. As women. living in a period where the doctrine of coverture is still operating. And essentially it means that married women, which in this period was the vast majority of women, were legally covered by their husband. And that meant they couldn't you know, make contracts on their own, in some cases claim their own wages. It essentially rendered them legally invisible. This is your host, Suki Wessling. How do you study an invisible woman? Or in this case, entire armies of invisible women standing silent in the corners of history. Today's show explores the research of Carolyn Zola, a historian whose area of interest is 19th century American hucksters. These women were, until Carolyn's painstaking work started, almost literally invisible. Carolyn refers to herself, self-deprecatingly, as the world's most boring detective. Her work involves scouring legal documents and newspapers and looking for mentions of women who worked in the markets. It also involves seeing the past through a new lens, which is a subject the Bavelry has touched on before. When Carolyn looks at a drawing of a 19th century market scene, she sees details that even the artist might not have been fully aware he'd included. In today's show, you'll not only hear Carolyn Zola explaining her work, but you'll also hear some recreations of voices that have been silenced by time. You've been listening to a mid-19th century popular song called Buy My Strawberries, about a girl who has to sell in the market to support her aged grandparents. Hi, I'm Carolyn Zola. I'm a PhD candidate in history at Stanford University, uh, where I study Gender and Labor in 18th and 19th Century North America. Um, I'm working on a dissertation that focuses on female street peddlers, hucksters, market women, basically women who sold food in public spaces um, during this period. Can you tell us a little bit, sort of a big overview of the lives of the women that you are researching? Yeah, um, I should probably start by just giving kind of a big overview about how gender and the economic lives of a lot of people are changing during this period, because um, that really affects the, the women that I study. Um, so roughly between the late 18th century, um, around the time of the American Revolution, through the mid-19th century, um, 
the United States are undergoing a very rapid industrialization and urbanization. So cities go from maybe 10,000 people to, you know, a million people by the end, um, uh, you know, several decades on. And ideas about family and work are changing as well. So the idealized family, this is certainly not everyone, but this is sort of a white idealized family in the late, in the 18th century. It sort of orients around a patriarchal father figure overseeing the labor of his family, wives, children, indentured servants, in some cases, enslaved people and apprentices. While slavery certainly continues and expands very rapidly across the South during the first decades of the 19th century, the idea of the family sort of generally begins to change into the something that's a little more familiar to us now, of a sort of a nuclear family, a pair, a husband and a wife, and their biological children, something that's far more bounded um, and less sort of connected to non-biological um, relatives. And importantly for the women that I study and for this period generally, Work is imagined to take place outside the home, generally by men, sort of an activity undertaken by men. And increasingly, the very real work that women are doing to maintain families and households, it sort of undergoes a, a mystification, like a pastoralization, as a wonderful historian named Jean Boydston puts it, um, where that work really isn't considered work at all. So that's a very, very brief way of summarizing a lot of complicated history. Um, oh, one more thing that I'll add is that increasingly men are uh, imagined to be working for wages and women are not. And women's wages, based on their economic and political dependency, are, are always much, much lower than men's uh, wages. And that plays an important role in the story, too. So you said that the family was becoming more based on the nuclear family, biological family unit. Did Before this period, did people consider their entire household to be more what we would consider family now? The You were saying indentured servants, um, apprentices. They would be sort of in the family unit because yes. work wasn't necessarily taking place outside the home? Yes, that's exactly it. So um, and a very good sort of illustration of this is the uh, political power of, of, of white men during this period. They were imagined to be acting on behalf of a family unit that d all the dependents within their family. And again, I'm putting family in quotes because these could be, often be um, relationships based on violence, coercion, not the sort of bonds of affection that we usually imagine um, to sort of hold a family together, but very, very... Um, harsh sets of um, relationships, but that men were imagined to be acting on behalf of, or husbands rather, husbands, fathers, uh, on behalf of the dependents in his household. And all of those dependents included women, children, you know, wives, children, um, apprentices, indentured servants, uh, enslaved people in some cases, um, whose labor that, 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 that figure directed. Um, and economic activity took place very explicitly within the home in a lot of cases, especially in the cases of artisans and and, and skilled workers. Yeah, and you were mentioning the, how, how much the cities changed. So a lot of these people were living in smaller places, and then I'm guessing more likely that their place of work was integrated into the home? Right, right. And uh, yeah, and another change that's occurring also is that industrialization and de-skilling 
is beginning to sort of happen across the 19th century. We typically associate this with the late 19th century, with you know the growth of these enormous factories, but the roots are much earlier. And what this means for laboring men, skilled artisans, men who themselves have gone through a process of um, of, of acquiring these specialized skills is that their their work is being de- you know devalued, deskilled, and compensated accordingly. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, there are many, many, many Americans <laughs> during this period who can't even claim that precarious artisan class position. Um, so, and it's not, I don't, I don't want to give like an overly romantic um, picture of this, of this period, what gender and work relationships look like, just to say that things are changing really, really rapidly and in kind of wrenching ways for a lot of laboring people in, in the United States. speaking with historian Carolyn Zola about 19th century women hucksters. The fact that these women are largely invisible to us now was actually by design. In the 21st century, it's easy to forget that women were only legally guaranteed the right to, for example, have a credit card in their own name in 1974. In the 1800s, a woman didn't have the legal right even to be her own self. What about women in this period before you are researching, the period before all of these changes take place, if a woman lost her husband? So first of all, what were women's legal status? Mm-hmm. And secondly, if they lost a husband um, or a father, what would be their options? Right. So this depends a lot on on class position to begin with. Um in some cases, geography. But again, very broadly speaking, um, we're living in a period uh, where the doctrine of coverture is still operating. And this is inherited from the English common law. And essentially, it means that married women, which in this period was the vast majority of women, uh, were you know covered. So that coverture coming from a French term, um, were legally covered by their husband. And that meant they couldn't, you know, make contracts on their own, in some cases claim their own wages, all sorts of legal, essentially rendered them legally invisible, um, premised on, again, that idea of that patriarchal head of the household who's acting on behalf of all of the dependents. It was of a piece with that, um, that philosophy. And so depending on where you were, if you were a woman in this period, if you're in a, well, let me put it this way. There's been really interesting literature on the 18th century showing how women who lived in cities, who could sort of make their way to a city, had better access to economic activities than a woman living in a rural area. And that that actually sort of makes sense. If you're a single woman in a rural area, running a farm by yourself is extremely difficult. Some women did it, um, and there were ways that that could happen. Um, But in terms of just... The, the majority of women were able to support themselves uh, outside of that structure. The city was definitely kind of a better bet, especially a city like Philadelphia. There's a great book by historian Karen Wolf called um, Not All Wives, exploring this 
this phenomena um, where just the ability to participate in the sort of 18th century service economy, <laughs> you know, washing clothes, cooking, uh, running a boarding house, uh, working as a domestic. These were all jobs that were, you know, not tremendously well compensated, um, but could provide some stability in some cases. And so then this this great change starts happening. And um, so you said I the the term de-skilled. So the the male laborers are starting to not be trained in specific skills, but be more likely to work in factories or be employed in a way that doesn't require specific skills. So how does this affect them and and their ability to support families? So this affects them in a lot of different ways. You know, there's in terms of masculine identity, there's a lot of really interesting literature about ideas of manhood changing in this period. Um, the sort of a countercurrent to this change in economic independence that white men are undergoing um, coincides with the expansion of suffrage to include almost all white men um, by the 1820s. So there's sort of an interesting history moving in two directions story there where they're losing in some cases, economic independence, but gaining a kind of political um, power that they they hadn't held before. Um, I'll just say, sorry, two more things I wanted to make sure I said about sort of the pre-story, if that's okay. One is that most, this is a very, the pre-early 19th, early 19th century story is quite a rural story. Most Americans are living in rural places. And another thing that's happening across the 19th century is this movement into cities. And so cities like New York, there's the majority of, of New Yorkers in the early 19th century were women. Um, there's It sort of runs counter to how we think about that. So women kind of getting detached from their family structures and moving into urban spaces. Um, another piece about the industrialization story that's important, just sort of generally, not necessarily for my research specifically, but just as another thing to flag for listeners, is that... Um, industrialization also happens with young women at the forefront. So if you think about places like the Lowell Mills in Massachusetts and that spring up in other communities across New England, that industrialization happens with you know, young New England farm women going to work in those factories. And in time, they're replaced by Irish immigrants, uh, women, children, and, uh, men. Um, but that's just another piece of that broader story of industrialization. Uh-huh. So when they're moving into the cities and the male head of the household is in a position that where he has less he has less personal agency than say say if a man had a small farm and a blacksmith shop he'd have he he might not have the richest life, but he'd have a lot of personal agency. And then his sons move into the city and they start working in uh, factories or what are some of the jobs that they work in and what's the result in, in their, um, their personal lives and their personal stability? So the movement into cities, you know, in some cases, I think capitalism is kind of an important concept to bring in here. That's, an, that's something that is intensifying in this period. Their roots stretch back much further. Historians love to argue about exactly where and when. We'll leave that for another conversation um, when, you know, the moment that capitalism uh, arrives on the scene. But, you know, it's, you know, fairly clear that by the early 19th century, 
sort of the capitalist mode has, has really taken root um, and is fully shaping um, you know, gender relations, social relations, relations, class relations. And so what that means is, is sort of two things. One is that some people are getting much, much richer and some people are getting much, much poorer. And this also accelerates across the 19th century. If you think of the Gilded Age, right? That sort of <laughs> late 19th century story of, in, of intense opulence, wealth, um, uh, that a few people are able to enjoy generally on the backs of, of many, many others. And so what you'll see, I'm thinking of a really terrific book by historian Seth Rockman called Scraping By about um, laboring people in early Republic Baltimore. You'll see a lot of, and this is sort of the, a very, very poor class of workers. So people who are dredging um, the, the bay to allow ships to you know, conduct commerce, come and go, um, cleaning streets, uh, you know, building ships, working as mariners, um, this sort of broad laboring proletariat, as some some historians have have called them. Um, and what that means is they're the wives that they are attached to, in many cases, are also working for for wages, um, and their children, in many cases, will be as well. What you'll see among the women that we're going to be talking about today is that their position, their sort of ability to position themselves as worthy of of selling in a market is almost always premised on the absence of a husband. Either mm. a husband is away, he is um, ill, disabled, uh, infirm, um, or, you know, it has, has, has died. And so they're able to sort of use the, the reality, the very, you know, s s stark reality of their poverty and their economic dependence to um, gain this special permission for, for selling. To the Honorable Jacob Radcliffe Esquire, Mayor of the City of New York, the petition of Mary Dorsey of the said city respectfully showeth that your petitioner's husband is now in the United States Army and has left her with a family of small children and without any means of support. Your petitioner, therefore, prays that you will grant her license to sell herbs, vegetables, etc., in the fly market as a huckster, and she will ever pray. Her mark, X. But let, I'll, let me say a couple words about sort of how markets operated in this period. So um, when Americans settled colonies in North America, formed towns, they almost always established a public market that was overseen by municipal authorities. And uh, colonists, you know, Europeans, colonists, then Americans felt this was very, very important to ensure social stability. So having, you know, food overseen and regulated to keep prices from skyrocketing, from unwholesome goods from being sold was just sort of a feature of like a stable social order. And a really important idea in this market tradition was producers selling face-to-face -to, -face to consumers. Sparing, leave off swearing, buy my herring. Come eat them with pure fresh butter and mustard. Their bellies are soft and as white as a custard. Come sixpence a dozen to get me some bread. How do you shine a light on invisible women? Coming up, women petitioning for legal rights. Yeah. 
You are listening to The Babbory. This is your host, Suki Wessling. We're speaking with historian Carolyn Zola, who has drawn much of her evidence of the invisible women hucksters of the 19th century from legal petitions. Though married women seldom appeared in court documents, their unmarried and widowed counterparts had to find a way to make a living, and sometimes that meant approaching a court where they weren't even allowed to speak for themselves. We, the subscribers, certify that we are well acquainted with the above-named Mary Dorsey, and that she is an honest, sober, and industrious woman, and that we believe the circumstances set forth in the above petition to be true. In the case of Mary Dorsey in 1810, a group of men petitioned on her behalf. Markets were a logical option for unskilled women laborers who, for whatever reason, were not able to ply more traditional trades, taking in laundry and cleaning homes for the wealthy, for example. We start by exploring the central role of markets in 19th century America. Farmers would bring their goods to market, but sometimes they needed help. Farmers had to get back to farms and work. That's a very labor-intensive <laughs> way to to, to to support oneself. Um, and there would be surpluses or there would be, you know, there are all sorts of ways that that didn't actually always work particularly well. So hucksters, which, you know, it, then and now has a certain negative connotation, uh, but also denotes a, an occupational category. It's a reseller, somebody who buys from a, you know, a farmer or a producer of some kind and resells, um, could purchase goods from a farmer and then resell to customers and allow the farmer to sort of return home and tend, you know, fields and garden patches and orchards and all of that. But these, so they're important figures in provisioning systems, and they stretch back into the 18th, 17th centuries. There's a long tradition um, of, of that kind of work, but they're always, um, or frequently kind of occupy this liminal position where it's, they're doing something important that people understand is necessary to sort of allow the flow of food to to work more seamlessly, but they're often accused of, you know, meddling and interfering, driving up prices, hoarding goods, mm-hmm. that kind of um, that kind of thing. So they're kind of scrutinized in very particular ways. And municipal governments, the ones who oversee these markets, will um, frequently give permission to sort of the poorest citizens of a of, of a of a community, provided that they are respectable, and you know, I'll put that in. <laughs> that's, a, that's a very complex uh, term. It's it's doing it's carrying a lot of weight. Um, like that. that they can demonstrate, you know, a good character and that they're worthy at, to to work as hucksters. And so, a lot of times, this is women. For instance, in New York in the early 19th century, I found a, a list in my research of hucksters in different markets, and the vast majority of them are women. And among those women, many, many, many of them are designated widow. Uh-huh. Um, so it's sort of a a kind of informal charity for for women who whose le- next stop is <laughs> the almshouse or or otherwise being a public charge. Mm-hmm. So sort of a, a step in creating a social safety net, though not exactly um, yes <laughs> what we'd consider nowadays. <laughs> right, right. It sounds interesting what you said because I can see parallels with now um, that 
people still view, you know, we don't use the word huckster so much, but when you think about the guy walking through a an outdoor seating area at a restaurant trying to sell flowers or the person parked on a street corner with boxes of strawberries that, um, you know, there's this sense of they're, they're fulfilling a function, they're doing work, and it's honest work, one assumes. <laughs> so, I mean, it's hard to know where they get their wares. Um, but but the, the, we still have that sort of in this informal economy, which is slightly different because they were formalizing this. Exactly. And so it's hard to say whether the person selling, you know, flowers in the restaurant or the, you know, on the corner, what, what kind of license or per official permission they've been given. I suspect, I don't know that the contemporary like regulatory landscape, but yeah. I don't think that they, I, I'm guessing they, they haven't, you know, gone through an official process. But I think another sort of similar resonance is in um, San Francisco, where I live. Um, there are a lot of informal street vendors around the BART stations there, the uh -huh. public uh, train stations. And, and there's been a lot of controversy about are they selling, selling re you know, stolen goods or are they, what kind of other ac uh, you know, economic activities are they participating in? And there's a lot of, you know, I think that the resonance I see to this period in terms of middle class responses is it's about seeing a different form of buying and selling than most sort of middle class Americans are accustomed to mm -hmm. and um, various kinds of like gendered class concerns about how space is being used. And mm -hmm. but we are we are also undergoing a really rapid wrenching economic transformation. So these women, you said that they had to be respectable. And I'm saying that in quotes. Um, <laughs> and and so describe what the women had to do to apply to do this, what the, what the officials were looking for, and then what they did, what, what was their role? So I'll also just quickly answer the question you started with, which is sort of why, the, why and how. And I think the best answer is that, you know, it didn't take much capital or skill to pick up a basket and a few extra strawberries when they were in season and find a place to to sell them, either with official permission or kind of just, you know, of your own volition outside of that regulatory um, framework that I described. Um, and so what you know, a woman would do is go to the the market committee of the Common Council of New York and present her case. There we have these petitions that I um, that I think I've I've mentioned where, you know, they're they're written like a, you know, a, a legal document um, in a lot of ways. And in in this document, a woman will would describe her situation, um, usually mentioning young children, um, an absent uh, a husband or one who, for whatever reason, could not um, work and support their family, and then any kind of mention of her own good character and her own sort of worthiness. So, um, you know, women talking about how they have attended to the moral education of their children um, and and not wanting to take charity or be a burden to friends or family um and then usually men and i can't i haven't been able to figure out exactly how these men were connected to the petitioner um but they seem to be you know people who were, knew her um would sort of affirm that this such and such a woman is a 
sober, honest, and industrious woman. And they almost always use that language um, and is worthy of a place in the market. The women's petitions give clues to who they were and why they needed to sell in the markets. The petitions do sort of two things. One is they're very beseeching and very kind of, they, they you know, in a, in a position, again, of dependency of, oh, please may I, you know, very, very deferential. But they also are sort of pushing for a very specific right that they that they feel that they are entitled to. So I think they're very interesting historical documents um, because they're doing sort of both at the same time. And they really do perform, uh, they know what they're, what the, the, the script is that they are trying to follow. Um, and they're, they're good at sort of at putting that forward to, to get the end that they, they hope to achieve. Let's take a typical middle-class white woman who is in a complete family and has a husband who's employed and at this time, she's most likely, I'm guessing, just to be working in the home or maybe doing home-based work such as taking in laundry, that sort of thing. How do the women who are now single and most likely also mothers, they've left the lifestyle that, that previously had existed where they would have been around their extended family? And so they're often alone, really alone. Part of what I'm really intrigued by, is, I mean, there is this sense of sort of isolation, desperation, kind of friendless in the world feeling from the petitions and also the way that a lot of people will remark um, in newspapers or in, 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 in other print sources will talk about these women, you know, friendless and alone with, you know, 10 children. And it's just a very kind of melancholy um, picture, and 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 it and I'm sure that there was much much struggle in these women's lives, but there are hints of their connections to other women along occupational lines. There are a number of petitions that I've found where groups of these market women, these huckster women, present them as a group. So there will be six or ten or twelve women's names. To the Honorable, the Mayor, the Aldermen, and Commonality of the City of New York, the petition of the subscribers humbly showeth that the petitioners, by permission of this Honorable Board, sell vegetables in Washington Market. Well, you know, it'll be a picture of a market. It'll be, you know, the lively street scene of early 19th century American urban life. And then there'll be a little cluster of women sitting together. These women, in many cases, would have been spending many hours together, whether they were in a weekly market, in a market that, you know, was open and operated every day, um, that there were sort of bonds of sociability there. The petitioners, on account of the winter season, find their business very dull, and that the present price of 12 and a half cents, which they have to pay daily for their stand, is too much. To understand how Carolyn illuminates the lives of these women, let's listen to a petition and explore the clues that it offers. The petition of Hannah Jenkins of the city of New York, widow, humbly showeth that your petitioner has three children, which she has educated, maintained, and supported for 12 years last past by selling coffee in the market, that one of her children by means of a misfortune in early life will never be able to support himself and who will be a charge to the city if your petitioner be not permitted to follow the employment which she has hitherto pursued. Like all of the petitions, it's fairly sparse, you know, it doesn't give her whole backstory. We don't know how old she is. 
Um, we don't know most of the biographical details of her life, but we are able, sort of, as putting on my historian's cap here, there are a number of things that really jump out to me. One is the she knows how to how to present herself and what will be compelling to the market committee. It's not clear from the petition how she had acquired permission to sell coffee in the market before the clerk told her not to. She's a very marginal figure. She's raising children by herself. She's selling coffee. I mean, that can't be the most lucrative enterprise. But she feels that she has a right to this work. So she's balancing that right that she feels that she has against this, again, a kind of deferential tone to sort of be both assertive but deferential at the same time. So she's a citizen of that city. So unlike some of the women I talk about who are kind of migrating from rural places or coming from, you know, Europe, you know, Germany and Ireland, in particular England in this in this period, cities were responsible to give aid to people from that city. If you could prove that you're from a certain city, they were responsible to give you, you know, it was not a lot, but it was something. So that even that mention feels a bit purposeful that she's saying, hey, if I can't... <laughs> support myself in this way, I'm going to become a public charge. And nobody wants that. And so yeah, again, women with very, very, you know, no no formal political power at this point, but who are able to, in very, very careful ways, um, assert claim, economic claims. We, the undersigned, take the liberty of recommending the bearer, Mrs. Porter, as a person we have known eight or nine years to be an honest, industrious woman. Her husband has been at sea some time, and she has heard nothing of him. She wishes to get a permit to sit in the market, she having no other way of providing for herself and family, as her eyesight is very bad. May 24, 1810. Signed, Robert Taylor, Taylor Lovell, Thomas Bridges. A group of men submit a petition on her behalf saying, she has lost her sight and would like a place in the market to sell. The date is like 1812. And then in 1827, there's a list of women, like I mentioned, of you know women selling in the market. And there is a, I think it's Mary Porter. There's a woman whose last name is Porter. And I can't tell for sure if that's the same Porter. Porter is a pretty common last name. But it seems plausible to me that this woman who had a you know very serious disability, especially in this period, you know, centuries before the you know, ADA and, and other kinds of accommodations where doing, you know, sewing and handwork would have been a really important way that women supported themselves, that, that she's unable to perform that kind of labor. And she's able to find a place in the market, even in this very kind of tenuous way. But then, you know, 10, 15 years later, she's still there. A hundred a penny in conscience too many. Come, will you have any? My children are seven, I wish them in heaven. My husband a sought with his pipe and his pot. Not a farthing will gain. And you see that a lot with these women. You see the same names come up over a number of years. And to me, there's something kind of remarkable about that. That it's such a, it's a very kind of transient, marginal kind of work. But for some women, this is really the, the what they cling to for, you know, a decade, two decades to support themselves. And that really gives some weight to the idea that they would have known each other and had a sense of themselves as a group, fellow workers in a specific industry. Yeah, yes, exactly. Be not 
not sparing, leave off swearing by my herring. They therefore humbly pray that this honorable board will be favorably pleased to take the premises into consideration and to reduce the same to six cents per day which they paid last winter. And as in duty bound, the petitioners will ever pray in behalf of themselves and the other hucksters in the Washington market. Part of what I find so compelling about this topic is the sources are sort of everywhere and nowhere. Because of the nature of this topic, the sources are in municipal archives. They appear in newspapers. So I've done vast numbers of digitized newspaper database sources of historic, historical newspapers. They appear in fiction and jokes and songs. And so everything that I'm searching for is sort of scattered across dozens of archives and collections. And each individual bit of information that I'm able to find is pretty, it's pretty fragmentary. An image that I'll sort of try to read alongside the petition and then think about, oh, right, there's that weird joke about, you know, such and such that I found in that newspaper. And it's the process of taking all of these pieces of information, puzzle pieces, (laughs) if you will, and seeing how they fit together. I was in New York City recently on the heels of a crisis of thousands of Venezuelan refugees flooding the city and straining its resources. Walking through the subway, I heard the market call of a fruit seller, and it hit home that the issues of today can be informed by an understanding of the past. These desperate people being pushed and pulled by a system will have grandchildren who walk the same tunnels as lawyers, teachers, or city workers. Asparagus, fit for lads or lass to make their water pass. Oh, tis pretty pickin' with a tender chicken. But let's not be too serious. This age was not without its own humor from the sellers and in the newspaper. Passing through the market this morning, I was not a little amused at the quick reply of a huckster to a pert young man who inquired, What is the price of this cousin of yours? Pointing to a little pig. One dollar, replied the woman. But here is a twin brother of yours taking up a goose that you may have for half the money. Aurora. When we return, invisible women illuminated in the art and advertising of their day.
This is your host, Suki Wessling. We're speaking with historian Carolyn Zola about women hucksters who were largely invisible in their day and in the visual documentary evidence that remains. But looking at pictures with Carolyn, we can see through the historian's eyes. The painters who created these scenes of simple American life may have had little notice or sympathy for the women who turned up both as subjects, but also in the corners and shadows. Hopefully our conversation is clear enough to paint a picture in your mind, but if you go to Babylon, com. you'll find links to the actual works that we describe and dissect. We start with 2nd Street North from Market Street, a Philadelphia street scene painted around 1800. The first thing I notice is the detail is extraordinary, just extraordinary. So when you look at this, it's a street scene. What do you see? So... The first thing that my eye goes to is the group of women um, and on the left-hand side next to, I think they're, um, I believe that's a courthouse, but they're outside a formal structure and they're sitting in their chairs and you can see there are little baskets of goods near them. And, you know, it's, there's so much going on in the image. I think there's a lot to unpack here, but what I see in that image is, is what I was talking about with, with, the, the, the petitions that talk, you know, that, that were submitted by groups of women, you know, pushing very gently, but, you know, insistently for their rights um, to sell. And so you see this group of women and just the, there's a very kind of easy way that they're sitting with each other. They're talking with each other. You get the sense it's their coworkers, you know, they, you get the sense of um, familiarity and it's not leisure, certainly, but there is a way that they've you, I get the sense, at least, that there that, that a number of them have perhaps been doing this kind of thing for for many years, as we were as we were talking about. In the foreground of that picture, the lower left foreground, we see what appears to me to be a nuclear family. So we see a man and a woman. She has a basket, but she looks a little bit more like she's going to market than going to sell it. Market. I agree. Yeah. And they have a dog. And it looks like they're, yeah. <laughs> and, and a child. And I love how in this time, children were depicted as very small adults. I can't tell if that's a nuclear family, if that's a child, or if that is uh, a servant. Oh, okay. Sometimes people would bring a servant um, or part of their, you know, that their household labor to, to market or send that person to market on their behalf. The people closest to the wagon the look, I, look, I assume they're married or connected to each other in mm-hmm. some way. Yeah. And then in the center back, I see a nuclear family with a child, a little yes. girl in blue or purple. And they're, they, they seem to be shopping. He's holding a bag. Yeah. He's got a, a parcel of some kind. And yeah, uh, that, that reads like a nuclear family to me as mm-hmm. well. And then there's a, what appears to be a boy to their right carrying a basket. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Looks like a young black child carrying a basket, uh-huh. um, which I think would have been absolutely part of what you'd see in Philadelphia. You know, the, the, it was a ethnically and racially diverse place um, in this period. Uh-huh. And, and in the 19th century had one the largest free black community um, in, in the North. Black women were very important street sellers as well. Um, Sometimes they were selling within formal market spaces. Sometimes they weren't. It's a little difficult to say from the records what the race of different women were. 
So I know that they were selling whether or not they received formal petition, along with many other men and women, they, they would have been uh, prominent and important provisioners. Do you see in the records mention of race for any of these women, or is that just not an I- at issue here? It's typically not marked on in the municipal records. In those petitions that I mentioned, race is not commented on, which is confusing to a historian because race cuts through everything in this period in very, very important ways. My hunch is based on those records, based on secondary literature, based on context clues, that most of the women who are submitting petitions were white, immigrant and native-born white women. But I know that there were Black women also selling in the markets. It, it's it's one of these complicated things. Race is so searingly important here mm-hmm. in this time. And mentions of race are very, very frequent. Mm-hmm. Um, and so my hunch is that if a, a Black woman were you know, presenting herself, presenting a petition, there would be sort of a, a notation by her name or otherwise it would have been commented on in their records. Mm-hmm. And the fact that there isn't any commentary like that to me, just really points in the direction that most of these women were, were white, which is a kind of, you know, a kind of privilege that they that they had. A lot of black women would have sold, you know, things like pepper pot stew or hot corn when it was in season, um, baked pears, other street foods would have been selling outside of formal market protection. And so a lot of the evidence that I have for them and their lives comes actually from short newspaper articles describing altercations um, that usually white male drunk customers <laughs> engaged in. That that work would have just been much more much more kind of dangerous and and without that that kind of protective layer, even though white women of course encountered dangers as well. Let's go on to another image, uh, the apple seller. So it's an Italian artist, Nicolino Calio, and it's a beautiful watercolor almost modern looking. Can you talk a little bit about what you see? Yeah, I love this image. There's, It's a very spare image. Yeah, modern almost it, in the sort of the way, the, the ge- geometry of the image itself. What you see in this image is an old woman um, kind of bundled in a cloak, huddled over uh, what looks to be something she's sewing. What I think is really interesting here is she's there with her basket of apples waiting for passersby but she's also, in the meantime, doing this other kind of labor. And it's not clear to me if this is piecework that she's picked up, if she's doing this for money, or if this is part of her household labor, sewing and repairing clothing uh, for someone in her home. But it shows to me or points, again, towards a direction that I think was very common where women were really, especially, you know, a marginal sort of apple seller, like, like she is depicted as, would have been piecing together different kinds of livelihood, literally stitching together a livelihood, doing one form of very traditional women's work alongside this more commercial labor. And and, and just the position that her body is in, the sort of seriousness of her face just gives this a kind of a feeling of weariness. The strawberry girl, uh, to me and my my untrained eye may be a magazine illustration. So this image is part of the same series. It's the same artist, Nicolino Caglio, in the 1840s. And it's a series of street sellers that he does. So this has a much more sort of sexual yes. connotation. <laughs> um, yes. she's, she's young. She's wearing, is that jewelry? Is she wearing earrings? Yeah, I think these are large earrings. That's, uh-huh. that's how I read them anyway. Yeah. 
yeah, she's wearing fine slippers. She's got sort of a come hither expression on her face. <laughs> At different points in the 19th century, these sort of huckster related moral panics would bubble up. <laughs> so people would see these women going about their business, selling their produce and think, no, 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 these are not hardworking, honest women. These are women who are engaged in what to that to their the, their contemporaries' minds were sort of nefarious or illicit activities. Um, and a lot of and in some cases they'd be accused of um, not you know selling fruit but selling sex. Mm-hmm. And I think this illustration captures that concern, that attitude. Um, and you'll see newspaper articles in the early 19th century. There's this just outrage, this panic, this these this large tribe of girls who should be working as domestics in someone else's home, but instead are, you know, monopolizing all of the fruit that comes into the city and, you know, engaging it, you know, just on and on and on, very vivid um, language. Sex work is becoming more visible in the 19th century. So I think it, it connects to that. I think it connects to so many young women, so many young people you know, coming to cities away from familial and parental supervision and, and connects to sort of larger changes in, in ideas of sex and sexuality. Let's look at the hot corn seller. What I see here is a black woman in a bonnet and she has what appears to be maybe roasted corn. Yeah. And so I think in this image, it's funny, I see a woman and I don't know if this is like, you know, the the artist's intent. Um, this is another piece from from Kalio. She looks wary. She looks yeah like she's kind of trying to size up the person she's selling to. She looks her eyeline looks like she's looking directly at a person, like a customer. Yeah. She's not looking at the viewer. She's it looks like she's looking up. She's perched, you know, there on the on the curb. To me, again, it sort of echoes some of what I I mentioned in the newspaper accounts of women, you know. Selling to customers who could be drunk and unreasonable and demanding and potentially violent. And the the work that a peddler would have to do, especially a, a black woman in in a in a city like New York or Philadelphia, where racial violence could um, erupt and did yeah. erupt across the antebellum period. Um, there were a number of anti-black riots in Philadelphia in the 1830s and 40s. The most famous anti-black riot, the draft riot in um, 1863. You know, black citizens, black Americans would have known how how dangerous these cities uh-huh. were for them. And finally, this is an advertisement. What do you see here? What I think is interesting about this image, especially if you think about it alongside the strawberry seller, is that this woman who's engaging in selling of goods fits very seamlessly into this image that is about all kinds of commercial activities. History is all about telling a story, and in the case of Carolyn Zola's work, it's a story that was all but buried and ignored as unimportant to the growth of this country. So let's get back to what Carolyn does day in and day out to illuminate these invisible women. The challenges for me, and this is the challenge that a lot of you know scholars of, of women, of enslaved people, of subaltern people, of marginal people of various categories um, struggle with, which is that when these people appear, other people are talking about them almost always. And so it's the, the every account you have is sort of laced with a lot of class or race or both biases. And you don't get a lot of these women's interior lives. 
and you don't really get them speaking in their own voices, except for these petitions, which are, um, you know, really just a treasure. I'm, I'm so grateful that I've been able to to find these and to to read through them. Um, if I can share just a bit of the process of working with these to to dispel any ideas that the work this historian does is glamorous in any way. Um, these are all microfilmed, which is a, you know, a wonderful gift. And I was able to um, request them through interlibrary loan during the, you know, height of the pandemic to my university's library. And I sat, you know, in my mask <laughs> at a microfilm reader <laughs> in the basement of the library, you know, for hours going through lots and lots of documents that were not relevant to my dissertation. Although every now and then I'd see really beautiful handwriting and think, whatever that's about, I should <laughs> I should switch my topic. That looks like a joy to read to find these little scribbled out um, um, documents. It's not the the most glamorous uh, work, but, you know, really it can be very, very rewarding when you do find these these moments that kind of open up these women's lives in ways that felt, you know, really difficult to, to do before. When you find these sorts of documents, that reveal details about these women's lives that make them feel more real um, than they they might otherwise feel and to give you a sense of of the work and the struggle that they that they went through we end this episode about women cast alone into the world with a modern rendition of the folk song barbara allen who rather than live alone wills herself to die and be buried alongside her deceased lover women don't have to consider such extreme measures now but carolyn zola explains that even in modern times we hear echoes in our culture of these women who are otherwise invisible But I think the thing that I find compelling as a historical topic and as a contemporary political concern is who gets sympathy, who seems worthy, whose work is valued and recognized, who is able to draw sympathy and what that allows people to do. If you think about how current welfare and aid are, there's a way that that's very kind of you know, based on certain ideas of worth. And I think, you know, we are a long way from the early 19th century in many, many ways, thank God. (laughs) But it's not illegible to us. You know, there are harsh ideas governing who, who deserves generosity and support and care in our society. And I, I think in some ways, the catastrophe that we've all lived, have been living through, the, 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 the pandemic and the way that that has really thrown into sharp relief ideas of gender and work in a very, very different context. Um, I hope that is beginning to prompt more reflection on, on how, we, how we take care of each other, how we take care of each other in, the, in this present moment. Um, and, and, and it's hard to say, you know, everything is very, very fraught. History is full of contingency, but I think 
to me, the idea of who, you know, who is worthy in a society is, is one that's very, very compelling. And why? What are those ideas premised on? The opening song, By My Strawberries, was from a popular play about a child huckster, and this recording by Ethno Waite Pardini may, in fact, be its first recorded release. Petition readings by Joe Truscott and Christine Barrington, and Christine also provided the humor column and market cries. The uncredited fiddle rendition of Arkansas Traveler, as well as ambient market sounds, are from freesound.org, and the Victorian Village sounds are by Victorian Vault on the Internet Archive. You've been listening to an arrangement of Barbara Allen, by Edgar Gertain, performed by Duo Espiegle with Claire Trio voice and Aurélien Sauer viola. Deepest thanks to Carolyn Zola for her work, which adds detail, texture, and depth to our picture of the working women of 19th century America. You've been listening to The Babelry. Subscribe to The Babelry on your favorite podcast platform or visit B-A-B-B-L-E-R-Y.com to access more episodes. The Babelry is produced with support from KSQD Radio in Santa Cruz, California. 